Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation episode where we talk about something big that's just happened, get into the details of it. And David, what could be bigger than the Ethereum merge? Five days ago, proof of work was abandoned, proof of stake executed, implemented. We merged the proof of work chain and the proof of stake chain, and we're here to talk about it. This is kind of a, a post-game show, I think. Who do we have on? What are we covering today? Uh, of course, none other than Danny Ryan and Tim Bako, the two lead coordinators of this whole entire merge effort, uh, who have been just shepherding the many parts of Ethereum to get this done. And there are many parts of Ethereum, so this coordination effort was no small feat. Uh, and so these people have been, uh, Danny and Tim, have been at the spearhead of this whole coordination effort. And so we're just going to talk about what are they feeling right now post-merge? Like, and also... What are they going to do next when they have been thinking merge, proof of stake, beacon chain for the last you know over a year now? Uh, what's on the horizon? And also, what drink did they drink after, after they merged? <laughs> so all of these super important questions and more uh, when we finally get to uh, Tim and Danny. Yeah, these are the important questions, I think, David. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I, th I think we want to ask what the future of uh, Ethereum is. So this is a major milestone, and now it's in the rearview mirror. Where do we go next is the question. And I actually think one of those areas we go next is we need to work on decentralizing our staking providers, in particular, our staking pools. David, got to ask you the question, but I think it's pretty obvious what the state of the nation is today. What is the state of the nation, though, David? Oh, Ryan, the state of the nation is merged. Importantly, past tense. Uh, the state <laughs> of the nation is also proof of stake, as in much of the uh, DeFi economy was previously proof of work and is now proof of stake. Uh, so Ryan, the state of the nation is merged with the future, merged with proof of stake, overall just merged in general. Uh, yeah, there we go. How would you like that one? I, I, I love it. It's uh, music to my ears. And we are going to be right back with two of the individuals instrumental in making this happen, Tim Bako and Danny Ryan. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Bankless Nation, we are excited to introduce you yet again to Tim Bako and Danny Ryan. These are two of Ethereum's lead coordinators. They've helped shepherd the Ethereum Foundation and Ethereum itself into the future, including implementing most recently the Ethereum merge. Danny, Tim, welcome to Bankless. How are you guys feeling? Thanks for Pretty, having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Pretty good. Uh, honestly, yeah. <laughs> like, I had an inclination. <laughs> huge yeah. relief, uh, very exciting. Um, you know, it's a culmination of quite a bit of work from quite a bit of people. So, and it it, it went well, I would say. I think uh, going going well might be sort of uh, an understatement in some ways because this thing was like smooth as butter, and I'm wondering if that was kind of like what you anticipated. Uh, I'm sure it was what you hoped for. That was on the optimistic side of things. But um, did you think it would go as well as it seemed to go? Danny first. I thought it could go as well as it went. Um, I thought there was, you know, a non-trivial chance that a, a client of moderate use would have had more substantial error where, you know, there's a bit of scrambling, maybe a quick release, or maybe like telling 10% of the network, you have to restart your node or something like that. But uh, the fact that, you know, I think we saw like a 4% drop. I think we saw some intermittent uh, node failures on one client that a few people did have to restart their nodes, but just like 
it was very, it was, it was a dream. Yeah. Tim, how'd you yeah. feel about this? Was it a dream? Yeah, it was like, I, you know, historically when we have an upgrade, I have to do something in the next couple hours, whether that's reaching out to some operator or client team. Like, you know, I, I didn't expect the network to go down. I, I was incredibly confident we'd like finalize and all of that, but I expected that somebody somewhere would have forgotten something quite important and like we'd have to reach out to them and, you know, coordinate. And that didn't happen, which was kind of wild. Like Daddy said, you know, there were some minor issues, but like, even that 4% drop, I think in a matter of hours, it was back uh, and, and potentially less than that. So um, yeah, I it, I don't think it could have gone much better. And it went pretty much better than like most of even the shadow forks and whatnot that we did. So um, I think we've had like one or two shadow forks go similarly as well. Yeah. You know, and, and, and one's later in the process, but just like we've had plenty of times where you're like, oh, 20% of the network's off. The network's fine. Yeah. as a whole but like we need to we need to go triage an issue but we, we didn't have that yeah so uh, one of my questions was going to be what did you think you would be doing immediately post-merge versus what you were actually doing so tim it's, it sounds like you were about to be you know picking up the phone calling a particular like client team perhaps or messaging them and saying hey this thing's going wrong we have to troubleshoot this but instead uh, you were just watching the merge and nothing, nothing going wrong, I guess. How long did that take to set in before you realized, like, wait, we had a, a you know, a perfect merge? How, how long until, like, were you in disbelief? Like, what was going through your head at the time? So uh, we, we kind of knew as soon as we finalized and even before we finalized. So there were some people from the research team who were looking at the attestations uh, kind of piling up on the epoch. So before it had officially finalized, we sort of knew we were good. That was, that was like a, a pretty big relief. Um, yeah. Each block, like, so you see the first block and, and then there's slots, right? Slots are kind of the ticking of time every 12 seconds. And, um, you can have a block or you can not have a block at each slot. And so we had a block and then we had a block and then we had a block and then we had a block. And like every, every slot that ticked by that we had a block and we had no miss, missed slot, you know, it was an indicator that like the network's online, the network's very healthy and like this thing's going through. So like iteratively through the course of like 20 minutes as we're waiting for finality, I think we're just more and more like, okay, it's working. It's still working and it's still working. I think we missed maybe one slot, maybe two slots between the beginning of the merge and finality. Um, you know, and it was only like on the third epoch or something, which is normal if you have, you know, 95 to 99% online. Uh, it was just like kind of shocking. So we're talking within minutes, you guys realize that the merge is going to be perfect or not perfect, but as good as one could hope. Iteratively, Iteratively. you know, yeah. iterative knowledge um, until that finality point, you know, but it, it was looking pretty good. And so where were you two? Uh, were you, were you both, uh, I know, Danny, you were at the EF office uh, in Colorado because I saw a picture of you there. Tim, oh, you were also there, Tim. You guys were right next to each other, weren't you? Yes, I flew into Colorado for this. Yep. It turns out it's hard to plan a party around a total difficulty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can, you know, I can relate. We're like, is this going to be a breakfast party? <laughs> Maybe a lunch, a luncheon. Um, and then at, at some point we're like, it's going to, okay, we can have dinner and then it's going to be at 8 PM and then end up at 1230 AM. So we're just like, 
we ended up, it's kind of this funny time in between uh, everyone gathering and like waiting. It's like a lot of like, well, so it's coming. Everyone's like refreshing. Yeah. Every, there's like, a, there was a wager pool on uh, when it precisely it was going to happen. People were playing Super Nintendo, you know. Yeah. Um, I had like my, my iPhone had 20 different Bordel tabs open like you know how you can go in this like safari view of all your tabs i would just scroll up and it would just be like bordels everywhere um yeah so that's what i did all day i know vitalik said he was um he was surprised that you know kind of the the merch date didn't oscillate as much oh as my some god people expected were you guys surprised yes. by that yeah i mean we did this better than a proof of work hard fork like the timing <laughs> the 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 timing when we hit it was like closer than we usually get I mean, it was what? It was just a few hours off of the total predicted time. Right. Because yeah, we were aiming were for 12 liners, UTC. Right? And I think we got six UTC. So we got like six hours from what we made, what, what we aimed. Um, yeah, that yeah. was that was as good as it could have gone as well. But Tim, you mentioned Vitalik. During this interim between 8 p.m. and like 12.30 when we were waiting, uh, you made a, you made a beverage, right? Oh yes, that's what I did. Yes, I spent all evening drinking Vitalik's because um, yeah. <laughs> I wanted, you know, by eight PM I, I wanted to drink, uh, but I didn't want to like be drunk if the merch was happening at two AM. Yeah, I didn't want to fall you. asleep either. So like the Vitalik was actually perfect for this because you had a little bit of red wine, some caffeinated green tea, um, so it kept me awake and going all the way until the merch hit. And What's the Vitalik ratio? Is that 85% uh, green tea and 15%? Am I remembering correct. that correctly? Yeah, correct. You exactly. have to get that ratio correct yeah. or else yeah. it's just muddles 80, the whole thing. Yeah, 84, 16 just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't taste work. <laughs> okay, yeah. so I have to ask, how how was it? Was it a good It was all right. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it tastes a bit like cranberry juice. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's like the closest I would, I would put it. Um, yeah. And so what, what was the atmosphere like when, when it happened? Of course, I, I think a lot of people listening uh, to, to Bankless right now, maybe they have seen clips from the live stream, the moment the merge happened. Uh, maybe they were even actually up and, and present for it. What was, what was the feeling? I guess you, were, you guys were in the Ethereum office. What, uh, what was there like shouts? Was there high fives? Like how excited were people? Or was it, it was a pretty chill, like, you know, this is a dev group and like just silent nodding and big smiles. Like what was the reaction to all of this? Danny, you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. Um, exciting. You know, everyone yelled pandas because we all saw pandas <laughs> on our, on our logs. And then, uh, a bit of like anxiety as we, as, as it, it uh, approached finality. I wanted to pop champagne after the pandas had happened and everyone's like, no, you can't <laughs> pop champagne until finality. Um, but once, you know, call it 18 minutes in, 15 minutes in, uh, finality happened, champagne popped, lots of hugs, lots of excitement and cheering. Um, it was it was an emotional release for, for a lot of us. You know, I think a lot of people in that room have been working on or at least following this thing for many years somewhere between two and five years and so to see it come together definitely emotional emotional experience i sit up till 4 a.m and i, I usually go to bed at like 9 30 so that, that speaks worlds towards <laughs> the importance Tim, Tim, you have anything to add? Yeah. yeah 
No, yeah, no, the atmosphere was was great. And I mean, the fact also that it went so well, I was sort of expecting people to kind of be partying, but things not to be perfect. So I would be like, you know, going back to work on my computer somewhere, like reaching out to that staking pool or, you know, that forgot to update or something. And uh, no, so like I got to eat cake and like drink the champagne with everyone, which was nice. Um, and it was just wild. Like it was kind of surreal that like, you know, it just happened on mainnet. Like you, you kind of see it happen so many times on shadow forks and whatnot. And the graphs all look the same, right? It's like, it's all, it's all this, it's literally the same thing that happens over and over. But to think like, oh man, like this is mainnet, right? Like it, it that, was, that was pretty wild to see. So, do you guys have any, like any, you know, family or friends, like your in real life friends that, uh, that you could share this victory with? Like, so, so for me, right. It's, um, a whole bunch of my internet friends, my Ethereum friends, and they're just as excited as, as I was that the merch happened and like get to share that victory with them, obviously. But then I go to, you know, real life and it's like, you know, it's like that meme and, and you're the guy in the corner of the party. <laughs> no, nobody knows the merch just happened. Right. Uh, as I walked with my wife the next day, I yeah. said that to her. I said, I feel like the guy. <laughs> I mean, because how big was this, Danny? I mean, we were joking yeah, yeah. before we uh, we started recording that um, the merge may have single handedly in one night reduced global electricity consumption by zero point two percent. Like that happened. Yeah, seems like a big yeah, deal. It's like you know Norway or or Chile or something. Yeah, yeah. It actually was this moment where at least because that. You know, I think my my parents and others they like kind of know what I do. It's not very clear to them what I do, um, <laughs> but they've definitely seen some of like the the energy uh, narrative over the past couple of years as NFTs became more in the mainstream. I think uh, that became fodder for some of the mainstream media. Uh, like my dad always says, like Bill Maher, like it's who talk show person uh just shits on on crypto because of the energy it's all about the energy my dad's like so this like this is a big deal this is like a game changer right because because bill maher can't shit on this anymore (laughs) yeah i think i think think so i think so dad's right though yeah 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 no no so it's it's, it is cool like they they had some context i think they know i very much believe in this stuff but also like uh had seen some of the mainstream media criticisms of the it it, uh, it 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 came together to a certain extent my sister actually lives in there she joined um the party which was cool i think she just got to see a one she thought it was going to happen at eight and then ended up staying until <laughs> 12 30 in the morning um on a weeknight but she got to see just some of the energy and see like how meaningful it is to, to this little sub community um so it was cool to, to get a glimpse there too Tim, how about you? Did you get any texts from family, friends, you know, celebrating this with you, or they just have no idea like what you do? No, my my friends definitely follow it. Like they they're not like into crypto. You know, they might hold ETH or whatever, but they're not like you know, LPA on Uniswap or stuff like that. So they they all thought it was it was pretty cool. My dad texted me. He was like, "Well, if this went well, why did the price go down?" <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So um, Thanks, also an ETH holder, but not uh, far beyond that. Um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, have this, I think it was kind of nice how a lot of the mainstream media actually covered the merge. Like, I think it is one of the cases where things, at least I, I don't read everything, but like the stuff I saw was like pretty fair. 
Um, so I felt like, I don't know, people around me who like sort of follow crypto, you know, they read like New York Times or whatever articles about crypto or like Bloomberg. Um, it seemed like they had like a decent picture of what was about to happen and the impact. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, I think that, that made it easier. Like I didn't have to go and explain all of this to them. They were like, okay, this is switching off. Um, seems good. Uh, seems risky, but if it works, you know, it would be, it would be a nice thing. Um, so yeah, that, that was quite neat. Yeah, I definitely, every time I spoke with someone from mainstream media leading up, uh, they clearly, playing into to the risky part, like they were clearly looking for people to talk about how risky it was and how crazy it was. And they were always trying to get me to validate, like, is this actually like changing the motor of a plane? I'm like, yeah, it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> So how did it feel to remove 0.2% of global energy uh, consumption? Because I feel like if I was one of you two, I'd be like, nice, I did that. I guess I helped. Very important. I think to contextualize it, though, it's if if the ETH price 10x, it wouldn't be 0.2%, right? It'd be like 2%, the new equilibrium. So it's not just removing like an absolute number today, but like removing this kind of insidious growth that was coupled with the platform that we want to reach like massive global adoption, right? So it's, it's not even just what it does for today, but what it does in the event that Ethereum becomes what we want it to be, well, you know, what it does for that future. Um, and that felt pretty good, felt pretty good. I will, I will caveat this a little bit. So we remove, it's like this energy still exists in the world, but it's like the world, Ethereum can exist in the world without requiring that energy, right? Um, so I kind of feel good, it, you know, I. I feel the good that we can keep doing our thing here and not have like a disproportionate impact. Um, but yeah, I also, I'm always skeptical when people like push that too far. And to a certain extent, I mean, like yeah. obviously you can use free energy that maybe wasn't being used in some yeah. mining, but you're also putting demand on it, which is yes. either going to increase the supply or uh, increase the price for others that are trying to get act, you know, act in that and supply. And I think the growth rate, like you said, is like the the part for me that like is the hardest to convey. Like oh, there's all these articles, you know, that were saying like uh, Ethereum reduces its energy impact by 99%, 99.5, 99.9. And, and it's almost like those articles are understating it because right. like you we take the point the today, yeah, yeah, you take the point where we're at today and the consumption today and sure you can like get a number, even though there's very wide error bars, but it's like. 10 years from now, that number would maybe be 10x bigger. And then, you know, even though looking at the energy impact of proof of stake is kind of a weird thing to do, we also benefit from like growth in the opposite directions. Like if computers get better, if chips get better, like then Ethereum takes less energy to run, right? Because it just uses computers now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is like a, a really neat thing. It's like we, yeah. And this, this platform that we rely upon the price of the asset for security, like... <laughs> we no longer have a linear relationship between that thing that we rely on and energy consumption of the platform. Yeah. Like plain and yeah. simple. It's very, 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 very important. Um, I, I just don't think that over like a 10 year time horizon that there's going to be much social and political appetite for something that has that type of relationship. So we can be very much more excited about, you know, price increases without all of the baggage that was kind of lingering, right? The, the sort of the narrative baggage, but also the, the real baggage of um, inefficient energy use. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also just, as we saw with one of the first applications to be adopted outside of like our immediate community, NFTs and art use cases, like, you know, even 
it's very, the farther you are from like the understanding of like the, how these mechanisms work, the more you're just like, why the hell are we bringing all this energy? This makes no sense. You know, it's just, it was not going to it, adoption. I don't think could be adopted uh, mass adoption of that paradigm. And as you said, Danny, like as if it, ether 10 X in price, that would actually have been 2% uh, of energy, global energy uh, consumption, you know, in theory. Um, but then if we, if we eliminated it, then it would have really just been another nine on the other side of the decimal in like how much energy we reduced. So like, what does it really mean to the average person to reduce energy by 99.95% versus 99.995%? Like it's still the same level of like impressiveness and kind of like loses a little bit of the point. And I think, you know, bankless listeners in the broader Ethereum community, we all kind of know like why we did the merge, you know, it's it's a more secure consensus mechanism. We're reducing energy consumption. So like we know what it means from an Ethereum for Ethereum at a pretty like concrete level. But I want to ask you guys what you think that it means for Ethereum in a, in a more broad sense. Like what else does it mean for Ethereum? And I remember Vitalik on the, uh, on the live stream, he said, these are the first steps towards Ethereum becoming a very mature system. So just want to appear in your guys' heads like what, what do you think he meant by that and what does the current state of ethereum mean inside of its own trajectory and aspirations to fill its own shoes um tim i'll start with you i'll leave the technical roadmap to danny stuff because um i think he has some, some interesting perspective on it um i think one thing that like the merge you know beyond like moving to proof of stake and and, and like reducing the energy impact i think one thing that i I'm really excited about this. Like it shows we can ship complicated things. I've grown like much more excited about this over the past two, three years. Like it felt like Ethereum launching was like incredibly ambitious. Um, and then we had like a, a couple of years where we weren't shipping that much on chain. Um, there was a ton happening, you know, within client teams, a ton of research happening, but like I was kind of concerned, like, will we be able to ship like complex things? Or are we just going to make these small incremental changes to Ethereum? Um, and then, you know, we launched the Beacon Chain, which was wild. Um, and I think, it, but, but we did that separate from like the applications. Um, and then 1559, I think was also kind of neat because it showed it was the first time since we launched Ethereum that we changed like the format of the network and not just like adding new things in the EVM or whatnot, but with these like flexible blocks and stuff like that. Um, it was kind of neat. And then the merge is just like 10X, you know, 100X bigger than that. But it's like, we're shipping this, insanely complicated transition across all of these client teams, which all have to work together smoothly behind the scenes with no downtime. Um, and we did it and we did it, you know, obviously it took a while, but like when you think that within like 13 months, we went from shipping like EIP 1559 to the merge, um, it's not like that long, you know, uh, in hindsight. So I'm, I'm really excited. It shows like we can ship like really complicated things um, engineering wise, um, both from like a coordination point of view, from obviously like the implementation point of view, but also like from getting the community to run this. Um, not that we shouldn't like try to minimize complexity across all of those things, but you know, if we want to get through this entire Vitalik roadmap diagram, um, there will be more complicated things to ship. And I'm, I'm much more optimistic than I was say like three years ago that like we can ship all of that. And the merge was like a huge bump uh, on that front. Yeah. To, to be fair, you could argue we've been attempting to ship the merge since 2018 with the beacon chain. If you actually encompass that complexity yeah. into this, right. So like, which, but the fact that for the past year, 
that com the complexity of the merge has not been writing the beacon chain for all these execution layer clients. And it's just been like the plugging together. You know, I think that yeah. the modularization here is also gives us yeah. very much gains in terms of scaling out teams, resources, and, and software. Um, yeah. yeah. And Tim, you, you touched on that subject, but Ethereum previously, previously, it's, it's actually going to be my question, uh, has this branding of like, oh, Ethereum doesn't ship. It's full of promises. It's got a bunch of ideas, uh, but it doesn't actually follow through on them. How, how much, like, I mean, I'm talking to the person that is directly antagonist to this, to this idea, but just like, do you think that that take has any weight left to it at all? No, I think it's wrong. Like, and I've, I've tweeted about this before to merge, but I think, you know, for what Ethereum tries to do, I think even from the beginning, like since Genesis, the execution has probably been like top tier and that like, yes, it was a mess, but like every every company that does something complicated is a mess or like project or whatnot. Like it's not, this is not like an Ethereum thing. Like it's hard to do complicated things. Um, and I think the fact that it all happens in the open makes it look much worse for Ethereum. Like you don't see, you know, what SpaceX looks like, you know, like, but imagine you know what it must feel like to do something like like what they're doing. Um, so I think that is like a big part of it. Like it it, it looks worse uh, because it's all in the open. And I think the other reason why it looks comparatively worse is there's a lot of shortcuts you can take that don't show in the short term. So you can have like all these other competitors that come and like don't do the hard stuff and look like they're making more progress. But imagine if you had something like, you know, someone doing that to SpaceX, the rocket would just blow up, right? And actually you do kind of see that, you know, like uh, there was Tesla and then there's all these like fake self-driving car companies, you know, who stacked, right? And they all had like all these demos and whatnot. And like none of them actually had like a self-driving car. Um, and I think you, you kind of get a similar effect where like it's easy to like look like you're doing as good as Ethereum or like you're 90% of it, but then it's like the equivalent of this self-driving car that was just rolling down a hill. Um, so I think we look worse than like we are. And I think even, and, and I do think we've, we have improved significantly in like, yeah, the past like two, three years, it's just been wild, the amount of stuff that's shipped. Um, yeah. You also, you say, people might say, oh, it's just ideas. It's not just ideas. We certainly, but we certainly have more ideas then we are able to ship. I mean, that's just the nature of like the 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 vibrant research community and the Ethereum ecosystem is like there's like new ideas every day. There's new ways to think about how to solve these problems every day. And like what shipping is is actually distilling those into simple, you know, what is what are the requisite ideas to get where you need to go? How how do we simplify them as most as possible? And then how do we not break this? you know, hundreds of billion dollar network in doing so. And so sure, like if you're just watching the ideas, you're going to be like, they're never, this is never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But that, that's the point of ideas. It's a yeah. point of research, right? It's, and to, it's, it's also to kind of wade through it all. And it's a, it's a really good sign if all the ideas or most of them come from like people working on Ethereum because it's kind of shows you that like, this is where a lot of the energy is going. Uh, even though it looks worse from the outside because you see all these ideas that actually yeah. don't. I mean, the, the Ethereum, the Ethereum community is, shocking intellectual powerhouse um it, it it we call it um kind of the intellectual gravity well of ethereum is strong and it just continues to suck people into it um academics engineers random people on the internet uh it, it's the force is coming for you can, can you can you guys talk about that for for a minute so like who actually made this happen and how did it happen so i think you know uh, 
so many people's experience with with uh, software projects, if if they're kind of in the field, is uh, there's some top down hierarchy structure, right? And we have like agile processes, of course, but you know there's there's a budget, and then there's you know a program, and there's a set of teams. Even complicated projects like run like this, um, but it's all very well orchestrated and coordinated and kind of top down. But I don't get the impression that this was how the, how the merge shipped at all and how clients are developed in Ethereum at all. I get the impression that it's, it's maybe completely different. And I don't know if there's an analog somewhere else in the open source world or something like Linux, for, for example. But Danny, could you talk about that? Because I, I think people are kind of wondering, the core right. devs, who are these people? Is it hundreds? of them maybe somewhere like how are they all coordinated how does the sausage actually get made here it's hard to say <laughs> even being in the middle of it um <laughs> you know and there there are maybe some analogs like maybe uh some of the like engineering standards bodies that have mailing lists and like form new standards that ultimately get adopted by the internet like uh like ssl and that kind of stuff or maybe linux maybe linux has some parallels they have a there's a there's a foundation they ship kind of all ship a kernel there's many different companies that work on it but ultimately there's linus who's like the the bdfl the benevolent dictator for life who gets to like decide what goes in and uses it for their you know linux foundation's political uh, agenda to you know, maybe if you go work on the plumbing, we'll put your feature in the, in the kernel, um, that kind of stuff. So we don't, it, there's some parallels to this stuff, but I honestly do think it's like a very um, unique, you know, in, in this context, in that there are, like we were talking about ideas, it starts with ideas, starts with research, starts with um, people thinking about the protocol, thinking about its needs, thinking about the kind of the design trade-offs, those becoming, uh, posts, sometimes becoming academic papers, sometimes becoming prototypes, um, and ultimately becoming proposed specifications, right? And, and there's a number of places where people work on Ethereum specifications. Just because something is a specification doesn't mean it's ever going to mean that. Uh, there are probably more specifications that will never make it to mainnet than, than are. Um, maybe, maybe Tim has the answer to that one. Um, and then ultimately, there are a bunch of people that build software that runs on the Ethereum network. These are often what we call core devs. Who is a core dev? I don't know. Um, I think Amin might be able to might be able to answer that <laughs> one for you. But uh, the you know there's the the protocol and the abstract, and then there's people that implement the protocol. And we have tons. We have many many implementations of that. There's two layers now: the consensus layer and the execution layer. There's something like five teams on each side, uh, maybe not all of them are production ready, uh, but maybe five, four. Um, and these people kind of through asynchronous processes around the EIP repo and other specification repos uh, through the magicians forum and also through some synchronous uh, processes on our all core devs call and consensus layer call, hash out kind of the importance of one, they kind of, technically vet a lot of these specifications and then try to figure out an optimal configuration of how to bring them to mainnet, um, you know, balancing what are the most critical things. Often security bubbles up as like a very, very, very critical thing, you know, without security, this thing doesn't exist. And then there's, but then there's other things like nice to have features. Like those might get 
less prioritized, but sometimes they do make it into, into this process. And so it's this kind of like amorphous process amongst um, specification writers, researchers, prototypers, and these client developers um, to figure out how to bundle specifications into network upgrades, often called forks, and, uh, and ship it. Um, the process of shipping it is, is also very complicated. The amount of testing, um, testing security analysis and all, all that goes into that is, is pretty massive too and happens also in like a very distributed fashion. But Danny, what, what I'm curious about is, you know, so you're a lead organizer here and, and you're kind of also like, I don't entirely know how it organizes. It, it's, <laughs> it's like somewhat, it's like some kind of chaotic uh, organization type structure. Like, so, so, and, and I would contrast that, you know, Tim was talking about, we've entered a new era for Ethereum and this is the Ethereum can ship era. We've just proved it. We have three recent proof points. Ethereum didn't always have that reputation. I hearken back to like 2018, 2019, when it felt like the project was almost like stalling out, even though um, you might say, Danny, like look, research stuff was going on behind the scenes. I remember yeah. a, a very famous, and part of this maybe was the the bear market, but part of it was maybe some truth. Uh, famous tweet from uh, Fred Wilson, Uniscore mm -hmm. Ventures. And he was like, uh, Ethereum just doesn't know how to execute. They have the lead. And they are falling. Call someone call Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is not how. It, this is basically what he said. Because this is not how you build startups in Silicon Valley. How do you build startups? Well, you have startup organization. You ship fast. You break things. Of course, we'll adopt that in the startup mantra. But you have to have governance. You have to have accountability. You have to have some structure. And the idea was that Ethereum would just fall prey to the you know tyranny of structurelessness. And it would never actually get anything done. Why? Because Silicon Valley knows how to build software. We did Facebook, we did Google. And that who are these Ethereum people trying to like make this thing happen with like what volunteers around the internet? Like, how does this even happen? Can, can you It's funny because the internet actually is much more built like that. Obviously, <laughs> you know, rather than these companies that were built on top of it, maybe that's the parallel here is that like Ethereum's not trying to be a company. Ethereum's trying to be the internet is well, trying what, to be a foundational protocol of the internet. Like yeah. what motivates I, I them? Why is, do they yeah. get involved? But this is like interesting because I think if Ethereum is trying to be the internet, like what, what a lot of these people are trying to build are like web browsers, right? Like when you think of like a client, it's effectively like a web browser for Ethereum. And the original parity client actually had a UI, like a web browser UI. Uh, now they've all ditched that. But um, and And I think... That kind of gives you a good feel for like, why would they do that? It's like, well, why do people build Chrome or Firefox or like Safari? Like, you know, different organizations want to like own access to the network, like the interface, you know, to access on the network for a bunch of reasons. Like, you know, and, and so I think you can get this mix where like you have these organizations that are financially motivated, like Consensus is a company, Sigma Prime is a company, Nethermind is a company, right? Like they need to make money at some point somehow. They don't necessarily make money on the client itself or need to ever do that, but like they very much need to like survive in the long run as an organization. And they, I think they do provide like, the people working on this are not all just like random volunteers, basically. Like a lot of them, I think, do see themselves as a company as like professionals who need to ship high quality software. And, and that's like, we, we get a lot of like, you know, let's say Fred Wilson was complaining about through that. The thing we don't get is like the top down roadmap, right? Like this is the other thing that's like, 
10x easier in a startup. You just, you know, you have the VP of product, you know, talk with the CEO, say, okay, we're going to ship these three things. Um, and then that's done, right? And, you know, and, and then you can just kind of execute on them. We can't do that on Ethereum for like many reasons. Like the first is just like the people who write the code aren't the people who run the software as like with the majority of the stake or the majority of the nodes on the network. So it needs to be like this weird sort of conversation across all these places of like, what, what is the thing we're converging towards? And otherwise, you know, client developers can write code for a bunch of stuff. Um, but if the community doesn't want to run the upgrades, then that was useless. And similarly, if the, the community might want a bunch of stuff to be possible on Ethereum, but if they can't convince client developers that there's, there's value to it, that it's, uh, you know, or that, that it's, it's safe. safe. Yeah. yeah, safe is the big one. You know, usually they can't convince client developers that it's safe. Um, but then, then the code doesn't get written, right? And, and it doesn't go live. So I think this is the part where like from the outside, it looks incredibly messy. And even from the inside, it is incredibly messy because like there's no, there's no like VP of product who can be like, okay, we ship this thing. Um, but in terms of the contributors themselves, I do feel like most people could like be spending their time doing something else because they're smart, they're motivated. Uh, so, you know, they want their time working on Ethereum to be valuable. And, you know, I think that does create a pressure to like ship meaningful stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there, there are certainly, there are organizations that have structure and are able to ship, but they're like a piece of the larger kind of amorphous puzzle. I think um, Ben Edgington referenced a, was it an article from I think 1999 about Linux, the cathedral and the bazaar and how, you know, the Ethereum process is much more about, it is a bazaar, you know, it is a place where um, there's lots of different specialties, lots of different things going on. And like, sometimes if there's something missing, naturally somebody's going to kind of show up and fill in the gaps because it's, you know, there's, there's a motivation to kind of be a part of this, this thing. I will say, so you said in 2018, 2019, we weren't shipping. There That's were Herculean <laughs> efforts going on 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 geth specifically i mean certainly on the beacon chain stuff like that was all being worked on but like sure the feature set that users saw being upgraded in geth was very minimal but like the amount of uh work going on into like sustainability of that of geth in the context of mainnet like uh state management uh state access uh, database optimizations all that kind of stuff so that like it can't so that it can handle state growth and not be dosed off the network um and optimizations and sync and other things like that like that was happening that was very yes. very important um critical uh but it just like it, it wasn't felt so all, i think it's important to note as client developers there's always kind of there's many streams but you can think of two streams like shipping new features and maintaining the client, right? And like, it oscillates between how much they're doing of one or the other. In 2018 and 2019, there was like a lot of critical of the of the latter, of that maintenance of the client. And maybe that goes back to what uh, Tim was saying, was that, you know, there was a lot of shipping, but uh, if you tell me what an optimization, optimization inside of Geth looks like, Danny, I have no clue what that means. Sure, because it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter to you except right. that like yeah. it kept the network. Up, but yeah, right? but so yeah, that, I will notice when the network goes down, and so uh, I haven't been seeing the network <laughs> yeah. go down anytime soon. Yeah. But but Danny, I, I want to zoom in and just get this a little bit more concrete if if we can. The way the way I've kind of pictured you and your and your job coordinating the the arrival of the merge and proof of stake. 
and maybe this is incorrect, so we can, we can start there, is like you just go to the heads of the client teams, uh, and maybe Tim, this is also maybe your job as well, you just go to the heads of the client teams and just like, all right, like we need to make sure that this part works with the other client teams. So like you drill down into uh, Prismatic and you talk to like Preston and Raul and be like, hey, are you guys, are you guys coordinated with like the other client teams? Are you guys, you guys all Gucci over there? And so like first question is like how many, if, if that's what you were doing, like how many people were you interfacing with on like a semi-regular basis for like the months leading up to the merge? Like if, can we actually like put that into a number? <laughs> and then like, if that's N plus one, where you are, and Danny's, uh, Danny's N, Preston Van Loon and Raul are like N plus ones, as in people that Danny actually interfaces with, how many people are they interfacing with that are also working on the merge, right? Like, the question really is, how many ETH devs does it take to make a merge happen? Uh, and like, is, is, there, is it possible to put these things into numbers? So I, I don't spend a lot of my time knocking directly on doors, right? I actually, um, a lot of my time on upgrades is spent writing specifications okay. and uh, communicating and educating and coordinating around those. So like, and then dealing with the feedback loop around that right okay. and a lot of that isn't like hey preston have you seen this thing a lot of it's like this is bubbled up is very important um pinging the right people or making sure it comes up in, a, in a kind of a group setting call to kind of work through uh and get through so the, the coordination mechanisms by default are very good right we have we have get we have github we have public channels and stuff like that so like i don't have to i don't have to be a hub right like i have to sometimes it's like a matter of knowing what's missing and saying hey can you do this or hey like i really think you you should take a look at this that kind of stuff but a lot of it is just kind of like keeping your eye on 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 the things and making sure the pieces come together and sometimes it's a bit more about like seeing seeing the future in the sense that, okay, we have to write the software. We have to write tests for the software. We have to do test nets, we have to do this and do that. So it's a matter of like uh, making sure that the people that are gonna be involved in this piece of the puzzle are aware that that piece of the puzzle is coming, right? And that uh, they need to keep their eye on this so they can trigger that piece of the puzzle. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more kind of these like soft things um, kind of maneuvering around it. And then, and then also like being the more that I think Tim and I both are like moderate to deeply involved in the technical weeds at times so that we can see, so it helps us kind of see how those pieces of the puzzle fit together and knowing how to get ahead of things and make sure they come together properly. Tim, many thoughts on this? I guess to answer your end question, right. if I had to like my sanity, probably like I must have been in touch with 25 to 50 uh -huh. people. Like, and definitely like, you know, 25 would be like multiple messages, multiple interactions per week, right? Like, you know, and then 50 is maybe if you're like, you know, once every one or two weeks, and then you probably five to 10 X that like in terms of number of people, like for sure, like, you know, 150 ish people working roughly full, like not necessarily full-time on the merge, but for whom the merge was like their main thing, that seems roughly right. But then if you add like a bunch of adjacent folks, you probably like double that or something. Like um, there was not like a thousand people contributing, yeah. you know? I mean, if you uh, start no, like, thinking about all the like professional node operators and stakers, oh, right. okay. then, yeah, then, yeah, yeah, then yeah. you get into yeah. quite quite a many, but yeah, I don't yeah. think that's so, what we're yeah, counting. Yeah. But if you're thinking about like people writing like code that then gets used by professional 
node operators or, or average node operators, I'd say my upper bound of like loosely involved is like on the couple hundreds, um, tightly involved is like on the hundred-ish um, range. Yeah, and that might be variable even with a, within a client team. You know, they might have like at the peak have had four or five people dedicated to getting yeah. out the core merge feature set. And then for the past three months, four months might've been more like, one to two owning it. And then if they needed backup because there was like some big hole or minor specification change, yeah. like more people would be jumping in. So, you know, it's kind of all over the place. The, the yeah. fact that we can't really pin down a number is awesome. It's really well, let me cool. just go to the, the Ethereum ecosystem org chart. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> run in a quick analysis. Yeah. You're muted, Ryan. Well, honestly, this is what I wanted to, to kind of ask, because I think that there's a um, like a wisdom here and a resilience and a strength. And I would even say a scalability um, here that Silicon Valley doesn't benefit from and can't benefit from because this thing is um, so decentralized. And actually, when you kind of look back and, and you actually see that, it, no, it can ship, which is the main charge. If you have like a decentralized community, it can't ship. No, it can ship. Then you look at how actually strong this thing is and how many individuals are involved because you not only have all of these separate uh, gigabrains in all of the different um, client teams, you also have the rest of the Ethereum economy working for you, right? And like staking providers and, you know, bridge uh, software that's being built and um, infrastructure applications like Infura and Etherscan. But, but then you also have like, the roll-up centric roadmap, which further creates innovation on, I think, what we'd now call the execution layer of Ethereum with teams like Arbitrum and Optimism and like Matter Labs and ZK Sync and Starkware. And all of these teams with their own set of like gigabrains are now economically incented to continue hacking and developing on Ethereum code base. And like, bringing that back into the core. And so when you start to like look at the different rings of the onion here, you have maybe like this core team and like the, these, you know, uh, coordinators in the core dev group, but like there are so many other layers to this. And this is a scalability that um, a Silicon Valley corporate structure could not possibly seek to emulate. And right. it, it's, it allows it's much you to more like the ecosystem. Yeah, it allows you to expand in so many different directions at once. It also has a, a, a resiliency, right? Like Ethereum needs to exist if the EF ceases to exist. Ethereum needs to exist if Nethermind closes shop. You know, Ethereum, like this, and and that's a design constraint that like Google doesn't have, right? Like Google, Google exists when Google exists. Like that's the yeah. they they they're they are the same one and the same. Whereas the Ethereum protocol and the abstract and the Ethereum network, um, you know, are independent of any one of these actors. Um, and that that's that is a like very important design constraint of Ethereum. And thus it, it builds and operates in, in, a, in a way that is just fundamentally different than a corporation. Danny, Tim, uh, when we come back, I think we want to talk about what's next. What's next for you? individually, what's next for the devs, and then also what's next for Ethereum. We've bitten off the merge. We've successfully completed it. Is that the end? Are we ready to ossify? Is there more ahead? Guys, we'll be right back with these questions for Danny and Tim. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. And we are back with Danny Ryan and Tim Bako. 
I think if I were you guys and we were post-merge, I'd be having this like big existential crisis. It's like, what the hell do I do next? <laughs> uh, is, is, how, how does it feel to be on the other side of it? Do you guys know it? Are you guys taking a vacation? You're going on a break? What, what's like the next thing, the next chapter of your guys' lives? Uh, Danny, I'll start with you. Um, I spent a lot of time on Friday and Monday and Tuesday doing a, a deep dive on the 4844 and withdrawal specs. Wow, no um, breaks, huh? <laughs> I think I was totally off on Thursday. So, uh, I was useless on Thursday because I stayed up till four in the morning. Right. Um, but yeah, pretty much I want us to be in a good position to have Shanghai conversations and uh, keep, keep things moving. I think withdrawals are very important to the community. So there's a bit of testing and refinement going on there uh, as our scaling proposals like 4844. Um, and, you know, again, I, one of the things that I really enjoy doing and I think I have a um, good insight into is kind of writing and reviewing specifications. So I want to make sure that I, I get that done so that we can keep moving. But uh, yeah, I need a break. <laughs> um, after DevCon, I am taking a not insignificant amount of time off. Okay. So, you know, middle of October, second week of October is DevCon. You can take like a month off. It's looking like three weeks. Three weeks. Um, you know, it, it may be up for debate. Okay. Tim, Tim, you taking a break anytime soon? So actually, I took a break right before the merge. Um, I don't write code for this stuff. So, you know, when my job sort of picks up now, I guess in a way. Uh, oh, now that, like, now that the merge is out of yeah, the way, you can like yeah, ship so many more things. Now we need to talk about what we ship next. And that's that's kind of what, what I do, right? So, um, and I think we, we had purposefully like, stopped talking about that for the past like four or five months just because um we wanted to focus on the merge and it was so big uh, but you can think of it a bit like a dam you know like we right. kind of closed the dam and the pressure is built up um, and now people really want to talk about what comes next um so yeah uh, that's that's what I, i'll be focusing on um and that said you know we we didn't want to have the client teams like jump into planning Shanghai the day after the merge. So like um, we're going to be canceling a couple awkward devs and consensus layer calls um, in the coming weeks. So people can like have those conversations async and, you know, slowly kind of wrap their heads about around what's being proposed. What are the different options here? Um, but without feeling like they need to kind of attend every week, otherwise they might miss like the whole upgrade scope changing. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like laying the groundwork so that, you know, after DEFCON, like once people come back and they've, they've had a time to disconnect and kind of refresh, um, we have a good idea of like the general picture and, and then we can kind of finalize the scope and, and start, start implementing these stuff. In some sense, consensus layer teams have been working on the merge for four years straight. You know, ever since they started working on the beacon chain, the beacon chain was always intended to become the consensus mechanism of Ethereum. That's all they've been working on, you know, is getting it ready for being the consensus mechanism of Ethereum. So I think, um, you know, everyone is taking a moment, you know, is, yeah. is that, is that a week? Is that a day? Is that, is that a month? Um, and when exactly hard to say, but Sure. everyone's taking a breath um sure. a well-deserved moment absolutely super well deserved yeah four years straight of just proof of stake merge proof of stakes merge i'm sure you need you need to take a break to be able to come back with a new frame of mind and it sounds like the answer to the question of what's next for ethereum is shanghai the shanghai hard fork but by definition uh, but but uh yeah by well yes by definition but also that it sounds like the shanghai hard fork hasn't totally been defined but tim to the best of your ability can you kind of just like you know 
using our, our, our going westward metaphor, can you explain what's in the path ahead of us? What is the Shanghai Fork mostly going to be about? Yeah, so um, like you said, it's still very much in flux. Um, and part of the reason why we stopped discussing it is because like three, four months ago, uh, at least on the execution layer side, people were starting to like make decisions about what should maybe go in and whatnot. And, and it felt like it was so already like, we didn't have the code for the merge done and we were already committing to all these things for, for Shanghai. Um, and on the execution layer, we have this concept of like considered for inclusion, which is like a soft commitment to EIPs because usually we don't know how like big EIPs are until we actually start writing the code. So considered for inclusion is when we say, look, you know, this sounds like a good idea. It seems like it's not going to break Ethereum. We'll try and implement it. And usually if there's no issues, we would we would move it to mainnet, right? Um, if if we do find something, not, you know, we might fix it, but it's not like a, a strong commitment that we'll, we'll ship this no matter what. Um, and then uh, the consensus layer side has a completely different process of just like making PRs to the specs. Um, and I, I can let Danny chime into that after, but at a high level from the, from the execution layer side, um, the, main, the two main things we had sort of soft committed to are beacon chain withdrawals. Um, so there's the spec for that is, is pretty much done. I like Danny was saying, you know, he's been refining it and writing tests. Um, and this is something we did like leave out of the merge. And, and there was always this idea that like, we would have to get to it shortly after. Um, so we have like soft committed to that. It's not implemented yet. Um, the second big thing or potentially not as big, but it's uh, this EIP called uh, EVM object format. And this is like a neat thing. Um, people have been trying to improve the EVM for years. And there's always this question of like, well, what do you do with existing smart contracts, right? If you add new functionality, are you going to break everything that's on chain? Um, so the Epsilon R&D team has come up with like this really smart thing where we can define versions of the EVM on the network um, and, and have, you know, contracts specify that they use a new version and then you introduce new functionality only in those, but everything that already exists kind of maintains its, uh, its current uh, behavior. So there's no changes there. And so that's the second kind of big thing we'd already soft committed to. Um, there's a bunch of other smaller things we've, we've soft committed to, but you can think of them as, you know, basically one line changes. Um, they're not in practice, but you know, they're all very minor features that add, um, yeah. Add some, one, some one line, features. one line of feature and then like 10,000 10, lines of list. testing. Yes, yes. Um, so there's a couple of those. Um, some of them actually aren't even that much testing because they just add bounds that were implicit on the network and we just make those explicit. Um, so things like that. Like, um, but basically, the two big things we've self-committed to are these withdrawals and then this EVM object format. There's a whole other list of things that's being proposed. Um, there's an Ethereum Magician's uh, tag now called Shanghai-Candidate. So if you go to Ethereum Magicians and you search for that, you can see the whole list of things that are being proposed. And this is what over like the next month people will discuss and, and kind of wade through. Um, and then we'll see if you know we, we update our currently existing list with other stuff if we remove anything you know because we think it's either no longer relevant or because there's some like unforeseen complexity um so that's that's what we'll um yeah right there okay so if you click there you see like say the first one there it's, you know shanghai candidate eip 3074 but then you can see there's a tag under it called shanghai candidate so if you click on that tag oh you're actually you're already on the page yeah so that that tag will, will show all of them that, that are being considered um and the discussions on them. Um, so yeah, and so that's basically it on the execution layer. The consensus layer is a bit 
different. So Danny, do you want to kind of walk through how, how that works? Right. So uh, the, the consensus layer, the beacon chain was architected in parallel to the proof of work chain. We all know this and then it was merged. Um, but in doing so, the specification process uh, was independent of the EIPs at the time and ended up in its own repo consensus specs. Um, and here, um, Features are proposed as kind of like little branches of code. Uh, it's an executable specification where they also do testing um, and in issues and PRs, we discuss them. Um, we do expect this process to over time inherit and unify a bit more uh, with, with the EIPs and especially with some of these features are like cross layer. So like uh, withdrawals are not just a feature on the consensus layer, they're a feature on the consensus layer that interacts with the execution layer. So again, and I think these things will converge over time. But one of the big things that we have um, on the consensus side that's been spec'd and is up for discussion and refinement are the withdrawals, the consensus layer analog to the, the withdrawals. Um, and another feature on the consensus layer that has been spec'd um, is up for discussion is the, the 4844, both of those being cross-layer. cross, cross layer. There might be, you know, I think especially between now and DevCon, there could be like a little thing or two that pops up and ends up as kind of, you know, an analog to one of those like one line changes, like um, some sort of like weird edge case that's worth cleaning up. Uh, you could expect maybe something like that pops up, but um, those are the two big ones under discussion. I think the famous ones, the, the ones um, echoing kind of the, the user and investor uh, community uh, in our ears are definitely withdrawals. So people want to know if they can get their ETH back, right? And when, at what point in time. And the other one, of course, is, as you just mentioned, Danny, uh, EIP 4844, which maybe is the, the most famous EIP since EIP 15... Five nine, one five five nine. Excuse me. Apparently not um, that famous. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so this is one uh, proto dank sharding, and this is all about. I mean, we've done entire episodes on EIP four eight four four on Bankless. And this is all about kind of the the scalability of data and providing that as part of the rollup centric uh, roadmap. So this is the yeah, big pr proto because it's you know an, an iterative way to get the there. First so we get one. we get some scale and we lay the foundation to get more scale. Just, yeah, just so one small point on that. It's also because of proto correct. lambda, right? Correct. And it's okay. dank because it's dank. dank and it's also <laughs> dank because it's not good. Okay, that's just a fantastic Ethereum trivia I wanted to get out there. Um so I, I guess maybe zoom zooming out, right? Um what problems would you say Ethereum still has yet to solve in its roadmap? Because I think maybe you guys have a divergent view here, but I think everything we've seen from the core dev community is that Ethereum at a protocol, uh, pr from a protocol perspective, like will ossify at some point in time. Sure there will be so. fewer changes over time, right? Like at some point in time, your jobs will be done. And Danny, you could go open that, that coffee shop that you've always <laughs> wanted to open, right? <laughs> but like that day is not today. It's not yet. So yeah. we've gotten through the merge, but what are the other core problems? And I guess the high level of the merge is now we have staking and we no longer have proof of work. Yeah. Um, we've, we've cemented Ethereum's monetary policy and Ether's monetary policy as well. But what other big problems are there to solve? Would you say, Danny? So my, my lens, um, when I'm thinking about what needs to happen to L1 protocol is first and foremost, we need to get to functional escape velocity. Vitalik's written about this, essentially the minimum amount of functionality on layer one to be able to do, extend and build and whatever on top of it so we can stop changing it. And then my lens from there is, and I talk about this all the time, uh, security, sustainability, 
and scalability, right? Like I think we made a massive leap forward with proof of stake on the security front, also on the sustainability front. Um, sustainability is nice, it encompasses a number of things. Obviously we've got that environmental standard sustainability stamp of approval, uh, but now there's other types of sustainability. So like the um, sustainability of the protocol from a state standpoint of, of state growth, right? So we need this protocol to be sustainable such that we don't need to intervene with it and I'm abusing that term because uh, sustainability, uh, environmental sustainability and protocol sustainability is probably a, bit, a little bit different, but um, you know, so some, we need to, we need to bound state growth. We need to bound node resource requirements. So this thing can re, re, stay decentralized um, and we need scale. Right. And so that's, that's roll-ups with the, the nice L1 data multiplier through, through dank sharding. Um, I, there's probably some other very, important things that could manifest inside of um, Ethereum, like the beacon state root landing in, in the EVM or BLS signatures landing in the EVM or things like that. Um, a lot of this stuff, personally, I consider nice to have and on our ossification journey, maybe they'll make it in or not. But really for me, it's this thing needs to be secure, needs to be sustainable, and needs to be scalable. Um, and we need to do the minimum and simplest approach to get those three things in a place where we don't have to touch this thing anymore. But Danny, are we like, are we like five years from the coffee shop? Are we 10 years from the coffee shop? Is it, is it longer? Um, I think five years is actually like very, very, very reasonable. Um, and the nice thing is especially like sustainability, like the node architecture sustainability, that's something that isn't going to bite us in the ass tomorrow. It's something that we have to fix, but it's going to, it can take time. And then the scalability we're, we're getting, we're getting scale through rollups today and we're working on multiplying that iteratively over time. So like, it doesn't actually feel like there's a massive fire and that we can do this right. And we can do this over the next three to five years. Tim, what about from your perspective? I think five years is optimistic, but I think one way you could, you could do this if, if you really wanted to never touch the core protocol again, is you can segment this between changes that require consensus level changes, uh, not consensus layer, but just like protocol rules. Um, and you can think of something like on the execution layer, like it's stateless Ethereum, right? Like we need to change the try structure um, from one thing to another. This requires a hard fork, potentially many hard forks. Um, but then once that's done, there's some stuff that you can potentially do outside of the protocol. It's almost like semi-ossification. You can have something where like, um, example, EIP 4444, which uh, is about dropping the history requirements for nodes. Um, but something that doesn't change the protocol rules for Ethereum, it changes the client behavior, right? And it helps to, to get kind of a more uh, more accessible nodes uh, and, and, and greater decentralization. So I could see a world where like, you know, maybe we have five-ish years left of like consensus layer changes. And then I'm not optimistic that will be done then, but I could see maybe the second half of that decade is like things that clients agree um, so like the protocol rules don't change, but the implementations of them all kind of change in tandem to be, to be better. And I could, for, I could see for example, like you could, you could have a better sync state sync protocol yeah. and that you could do it in eight years and doesn't yeah. change Ethereum. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But even EIP 4444 doesn't need any protocol changes, right? Yeah. That's like, kind of like a sync protocol change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I could see, and, and same with something like stateless, you know, you could like front load all of the protocol changes but only start gossiping the witnesses and building the blocks separately after that, right? And, and the rules of the protocols don't change from that. Um, so I, I could see that. I, I'd have to get it all done in five years, but if you, if you give me an extra five where we don't change the protocol rules. Um, I, th yeah. 
I think we're going to not, I think it's going to get harder and harder yes. for, and for good, like, yes. because it's just going to be harder and because it's for good reason. And so like things that take 10 years, I don't think are going to happen. Yeah. So I agree with that. I feel like the, the bar that a feature needs to hit or like a potential protocol change needs to hit to be considered. Yeah. It's getting increase. higher. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason is just, there's more stakeholders, right? Like there's just more people who need to agree. It's a good idea. And there's more impact if it's, if it goes wrong. Um, and usually we're also at the point where like, there's not many free lunches anymore on Ethereum. Most of the things we're considering have like trade-offs and yeah. be, by virtue of having a trade-off, it's like, you need to get people to agree to one side of the trade-off and that gets harder and harder as the community grows. Um, so I think we have this natural tendency towards there. And the question is like, how do you strategically fit all the potential changes such that they're like doable before the community like is too big and too hard to coordinate for, for something like that. And I um, think the message uh, we're hearing from, from both of you is that there's a lot of work ahead and like yes. years of work ahead to pull off the entire Ethereum roadmap. And I know we're all here to like, because we believe in crypto, um, because we think that Ethereum will make the world a better place. Um, but also, Tim, I, I know it's your take that that's not necessarily inevitable. And maybe this is a reason that we actually have to put in the hard work. Bankless Twitter account uh, recently tweeted out, what's your most cancelable crypto take? And I thought, Tim, you had a really interesting, insightful take here, which is it's not a given that crypto will actually make the world better, is what you said. And we should heavily caveat such claims and push back and, and work hard to make sure it actually ends up being the case that the thing that we are building actually does make the world better. Can you talk a little bit about that, Tim? Yeah, I feel like the, the bankless Twitter baited me right before this call. But, um, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think, you know, um, especially with, with especially with the merge now and, and I think in general, like the space, we 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 want to believe we're building something that makes the world better. And I think to be clear, crypto even today brings a lot of a ton of positives, right? And the question is like 10 years from now, is the balance a net positive or a net negative? I think it's worth recognizing that like, you know. There's still many scams. The environmental bit was like concerning up to recently. Um, and, you know, things like privacy. There's a world where like crypto enables mass financial surveillance on a scale that's like never been seen and like lays the, lays the path for like central bank digital currencies. You know, we kind of build the technology that like governments would never have thought to build and then they just co-opt it and build kind of the worst possible version of it. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying that that's the likely outcome. I'm saying it, it very much is a possible outcome. And that's something that, like, as a community, we should think about. Um, I think somewhat paradoxically, at the protocol level, it's almost where we have the least impact on a lot of this stuff. Um, I think we can help, you know, anything that helps make joining the protocol and participating as low requirement as possible is good um, because it means you just get like a more diverse set of participants and it's, it's harder to capture. Um, but I think, you know, when thinking about like what applications we build, um, what scaling solutions we build, I don't know, that's, that's something that's very much on my mind. Like, are we sure that this is not just gonna be used by like some government or just use as is and, you know, force everyone to say use USDC and then that's actually a worse status quo 
than say bank accounts on many respects. The, the um, joke I was giving with Ryan is uh, when we were talking about this tweet before the live stream podcast, uh, before this live stream, Tim was that, oh sweet, we just shipped Ethereum to proof of stake. Now our Ponzi sys platform is like super efficient. It's going to be great. <laughs> right. Uncensorable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Ponzi. I'm, I, yeah, I think, you know, scams are like, almost the easiest version to like defend against because like people just kind of learn, like you look at the early internet, right? There were tons of scams and they like mostly went away or got like relegated. So I'm, I'm not, I don't lose sleep over scams. I think like privacy and like financial surveillance is probably the biggest one that I think is, is, uh, is a challenge. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a challenge not only because like the tech is hard, but also because there's a world where you build privacy and that's also like a terrible world. Like you, you know, you, yeah, it, there's very bad ways to build privacy software. So like, yeah, it is. Yeah. I think it's super interesting. There certainly can be with any of these new technologies, many unintended consequences that that become unleashed. I, I know in particular, of yeah. course, you guys, I'm sure have been following like the, you know, AI type discussions and yeah. AI ethic type discussions. In but a It's a bit of a cop out to say they're unintended. What I'm saying is I think, you know, we can very much predict the second order effects. And I think there's a world where like, Eve, and and the AI the AI risk people will tell you that as well you know like with Google and they'll, when they'll criticize Google and open AI it's like the people there are very well aware of the risk but they're driving in that direction thinking you know they will somehow avoid them but it's not like an unintended consequence it's just like a second order effect you chose to dismiss because you thought you could like navigate around it and we very well very well might but it's yeah, it's not a given. I think like, this kind of stuff breaks my brain a little bit. But uh, Danny, do you have a do you have a take on this? My take is that without such technologies that blockchains enable, we're on a crash course anyway with the uh, massive uh, corporate surveillance and government surveillance and and kind of the manipulation and control uh, going on here. And so, at the very least. This disintermediates that trajectory and allows us to kind of rethink and re-architect what's going on. Obviously, we could re-architect it badly, poorly. Uh, but one thing that blockchains do provide that traditional structures do not is that even if we end up in a weird or bad equilibrium, um, you can you can do new things, right? So if we end up in a world where uh, we're using two rollups and they're massively surveyed and uh, controlled, you can actually build another rollup. That has privacy right so like there there's a certain matter of choice as long as we have a neutral base layer uh that this stratum provides for humanity um obviously there can be structures beyond that um disallow us from exercising that choice for example if we were regulated to use the government sanctioned roll-up uh we, we might have issues in exercising our choice to create a new privacy roll-up but um that kind of extra protocol consideration aside, um, these protocols allow us choice that does not exist in our current structure. So I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pessimist. I'm trying to be the optimist right here, but, yeah. uh, you know, I think that that's my optimistic take here. Yeah. And I did caveat my tweet with like a more optimistic one, which is like, it's really hard to have this conversation because when like critics will compare you to like perfect, right. To the perfect world. And they'll say, you know, like Ethereum is like not perfect because of X, Y, and Z. Um, but then, like Danny was saying, like the, the status quo very much isn't, right? So ideally, all you want is like a net improvement over the status quo. Um, but to get that, I think you need to almost hold yourself to like a much higher bar internally. Um, but 
yeah, it's a very tricky thing to do when, again, all this happens in the open and there's no top down. <laughs> you know, it's not like I can choose what privacy solutions Ethereum will build, right? Like, you know, I can like or, that, or even more so that people will build on top of it, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like I, you know, like I can do many things like an individual, but it's like it's not like a top-down thing. So it's like a tricky, yeah, it's almost harder than the AI problem because the AI problem, you know, you have like a limited number of organizations with enough uh hardware to actually meaningfully make progress, and then you can like steer them. We have like this amorphous blob of people all working on it. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's a harder thing to Yeah, yeah this is interesting. It, it is interesting that it's kind of out of the core dev's hands, right? And it's, you know, it's back to kind of the, the layer zero, back to the community. And I do appreciate something that, um, that you were saying is like, um, these types of takes are not takes that you'd get canceled for in Ethereum. Like, I, I feel very proud that the Ethereum community is always one that kind of um, is its harshest critic at times. Um, and I, I hope we're able to preserve that that moving forward because I think that's um, that's gotten us uh, to the merge and gotten us to this era of uh, momentum around shipping. And uh, Tim and Danny, we just want to want to thank you guys both for joining us and also for helping to deliver this. I know it's not just you, of course. You are flanked by and represented by dozens, hundreds An of different countable number, yeah. Un like developers from around the world who helped make this happen. But as kind of their voice and, and uh, their face, I think on behalf of a community of, of users and passionate people, individuals on the bankless journey, like sincerely, thank you. We appreciate you. We appreciate all of the core devs, all of the researchers who made the merge happen. Uh, and uh, it's feeling very much like the the future of Ethereum is bright thanks to your work. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and, and echo that shout out to everyone uh, involved in this. It was a colossal effort. Yeah. Speaking of which, by the way, we are having Vitalik on the show tomorrow. What, what should we ask Vitalik, guys? Any any burning questions in your mind, Danny or Tim? I talk to him all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ask him. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Vitalik's been thinking a lot. Of, he's been drawn into the the AI conversations um, and and where that's going for humanity. I think a lot of people have, but he he has some really interesting takes there. So if you have a moment, uh, take a, a sidestep from from crypto into into his takes on AI. That sounds like some great bear market content. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we will leave it there. Everyone in the midst of the bear market, but we are building Danny and Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, Bankless Nation. Remember, none of this has been financial advice. ETH is risky. So is Ethereum. It always is. Crypto is risky. All of it. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.